big spectacular movies, very pro-American, but character-driven. You know, this is these are different from you know Vin Diesel or I don't know Steven Seagal films back in the day, or where it was pure action. But you really didn't. These characters were plastic and one-dimensional, two-dimensional at best. The Joshua Fund goes to the movies. This summer has a lot of great movies coming out. And, of course, Joel Rosenberg, our founder, loves the movies and has some great insights into some of the movies that will be in your box office this summer. Mission Impossible, The Sound of Freedom, and Golda. Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today we're talking with Joel Rosenberg, who's here in the United States in Denver and is going to give us some insights into these uh, movies that are coming out this summer. And uh, Joel, welcome. So glad you can give us uh, kind of your take on these movies. Well, I did go to film school and I've never made a movie, but I, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> I do yeah. love movies and, uh, and I, and I'm still hoping yeah. that one of my uh, thrillers or several of my, uh, political yeah. thrillers will become movies. We actually have a, a movie deal on the Kremlin conspiracy. If that moves forward in a significant way, uh, we'll certainly update this audience about that. Uh, but it's an early stage. A really great screenwriter has done a two drafts on that script. So we'll see. We're excited. But, yeah. Yeah, so I'm kind of excited. But I love movies, and I love I summer movies in particular because those are usually blockbusters, and they're usually the movies that are designed to pull people out of their homes, away from Netflix, away from Paramount Plus and yeah. Disney and you know uh, Amazon, whatever, and, 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 and go into the big screen. And sure. that is getting tougher and tougher to do yeah. for several reasons. First, of course, during COVID, all the movie theaters were shut down, which I really didn't understand. And I don't want to get into a whole COVID rant right no, now, no, but no. I will say, <laughs> so just to be clear, uh, churches had to be closed, but strip clubs and bars and casinos, those could be open. Yeah. But movie Ooh. theaters in which you could literally pick your seat and they could separate people by two, three, four, five seats that they wanted. And you're looking forward and you're not doing anything. Yeah. Those had to be closed. I really didn't understand the whole concept. Totally, but, uh, totally crazy. So, uh, yeah, you, yeah, and you've written. I mean, obviously, you write thrillers. You you you've written also nonfiction books that are you know really some of the content of this podcast that we go over on a right. regular basis. Some some Bible study books, some a range of things. But as you know, you've written some really great thrillers over. 15, I think, bestseller uh, books, uh, New York Times and others. Honestly, Joel, you've got a lot to say about what some of these movies are about. Let's start with that first one, uh, Mission Impossible. What is it? Mission Impossible 7? Mission Impossible 7 and the, the penultimate, meaning this is the next to last what? that there will ever be with Tom Cruise playing Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. Let's start with Tom Cruise is a nut. I love him, but he's he's a bit of a nut. And of course, theologically, we're way different, right? Yeah. He's in, he's a Scientologist, and we're evangelical Bible believing, yeah. yeah. born again Christian. So a little bit different there. Um, but I will say the one connection that we have, aside from being interested in thrillers, he's super successful, and me a little bit less so. <laughs> but is he was uh, Tom Cruise was born in Syracuse, New York, and I was born I in Syracuse, New York. And I don't know if there's something that's in the water in Syracuse that leads people to be, have a passion for thrillers. I don't know about that. <laughs> I didn't know um, it was a particularly exciting place when you really. Apparently, <laughs> or, or not exciting enough, meaning we had to add some thrill right. into our lives because it's sort of, I don't know, sort of a dying city. It was kind of sad. Uh, but um, look, one of the things that's interesting about the, the Mission Impossible series is, in my view, 
every single one of the Mission Impossible movies has been better than the one before. Hmm. And you almost can't say that about sequels. Of yeah. course, famously, uh, Godfather 1 was an Academy Award winning movie at multiple Academy Awards and was amazing. And Godfather 2 might be as good as the original. It might be better in certain ways, but you certainly have to have seen the first one. But it won a, a raft of uh, Academy Awards as well. But rarely are sequels as good. It just yeah. It's just not the nature of the beast. Yeah. And yet it really owes to Tom Cruise. He has this passion for taking the audience on a bigger, better, more exciting, more intense, and more emotional ride. He's been very careful. And then one of the things I like about the Mission Impossible series is that it's very character-driven, even though mm. there's these huge set pieces of, of dramatic you know, uh, stunts which he does himself and uh, the stunts themselves have gotten better. He's gotten away from CGI. Um, you know, the first one, there's a big moment on a train that's going through the channel from England to France. It's all CGI. Yeah. But over time he thought, why am I doing CGI? We have the money. We make a billion dollars a movie. Right. And I want to do crazier stunts than I did the last time. So let's just do it. Let's just go crazy. And so he teaches himself to like fly a helicopter by himself, but not just to fly it, but fly it in a death spiral that's almost going to crash, but then he doesn't at the last minute. And they film it with multiple cameras so you know he's really in that helicopter and he really is flying it by himself and there's nobody else in there. And if he makes a mistake, he's going to die. I can't imagine what the insurance yeah. costs are on a film like that yeah. because this is the biggest grossing box office star yeah. on the planet – yeah. Bar none. And uh, this one, I got to tell you, um, I loved Mission Impossible 7 with one exception. I mean, there's a couple exceptions, but but because it's it's part one of two. Oh, so it really? does leave you hanging and it does leave you to some degree unsatisfied because there's a, there's a critical plot element that resolved. you don't understand mm. exactly why they're going after this thing. In movie making, it's called a MacGuffin where they don't really tell you exactly why do we need this? In this case, it's it's – uh, you know, it's, it's in the trailers, but it's like a certain type of key that looks like a cross. You need both halves to do something, but you don't know what. What that is. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's amazing to, to fill up two hours and 47 minutes in a billion dollar movie where you're like, but what does it do? <laughs> I don't know, but everyone <laughs> still don't know to die to get it, <laughs> to get both parts of it and then figure out what do you do with it. But it was fun. I, I got to say, we, you know, friends and I, we saw it in D.C. when we were visiting family. And that's why we're here in Denver visiting my folks who are not doing so well in their mm -hmm. mid-80s. But wow, we saw it in IMAX. I not only encourage people to see it. That's the thing. But see it in IMAX. It just, this is the way movies are made. Summer movies are made to uh, to be watched yeah. and listened to. Well, I, I hope that we can continue, you know, this sort of uh, occasional series on our podcast about talking about different movies and things like that. Because yeah, if, you, if you've never discussed a movie with Joel Rosenberg, people, I want you to know it's a highlight. He's got so many insights into how this was done or how the producers and the directors are creating an environment that makes you actually believe that Ethan Hunt is going to, you know, be able to somehow grab onto the ledge and hold on while, you know, things are actually literally falling apart. I mean, that's- Or that's drive <laughs> off a mountainside on a motorcycle and then parachute his way down <laughs> into a train. Oh my like, goodness. it seems unlikely, and it is, right. but you think of also just as a side, first of all, that's an amazing, if you get a chance to watch the YouTube video of how they made that wow. scene and how they practice for it, because it's not normal, right? There, there's no 
There's no roadmap, literally or figuratively, on how to drive a motorcycle off a mountain and then parachute down and land in a train. Nobody's ever done it. So they had to build this huge ramp, and then there was wind cross currents. How are they going to have the cameras? There's going to be a helicopter filming right above them, but that's going to create down pressure. And so he, they did it, I don't know, like a hundred times. That's a hundred motorcycles they, they destroyed. <laughs> they just, a line item on the budget here. You just know, line item on the budget. But uh, yeah, but, but you got it. I mean, I love this movie. And I think one of the things that's also important about Tom Cruise movies, even though he's a nut, God bless him. But I mean, he, he you know, yeah, he's, he's, whack. he's a, he's an, a very eccentric person and he needs Jesus. In addition to that, I mean, that being said, I would just say he's very pro-American. And one of the things he has done, starting with uh, the original Top Gun in 1985 or 86, I think it was 86. 86, yeah. That was the first movie that was a pro-American military movie after all the movies and the sadness and the controversy over the – over the Vietnam War. Yeah. And suddenly he was like, yeah, I get it. People don't only like that war, but we're still the greatest country in the world. And we've got a great Air Force or Navy in this case. And let's celebrate that. Yeah. And people loved it. I loved it. Uh, I think, by the way, you and your wife and I saw uh, I Top say. Gun in Jerusalem. Which, That's right. How do we not do a podcast on that? But I, I thought know. that was even better than the first. Yeah. But again, pro-American. You know, these movies are not woke uh, they're not, you know, I mean, there's there's flaws. I mean, the CIA sometimes has, you know, infiltrated by somebody who's horrible and trying to do something bad. Look, but it, these are movies that celebrate America being great, but still having to be uh, highly right. vigilant against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons they do so well, because they're just not buying into the wokeness that is infected Hollywood yeah. and most of popular culture. Well, I think, I think you're going to see that. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that uh, as we talk about some of these other movies that the, the, the movies that uh, are trying to, I would say, and maybe you can comment on this, you know, socially manipulate us into thinking black is white and right is wrong uh, is, uh, you know, I think we sometimes might have a visceral reaction to that and, and people don't want to be, you know, sort of manipulated like that. But if you go to a Mission Impossible or, uh, you know, a Tom Cruise Top Gun movie and you can escape, but you can actually be reinforced in some of those better values, I think that's what drives people to pay the money to go to a box uh, theater through the box office. I agree. I think it's the combination in this case of, yes, these are huge, spectacular spectacles, meaning that, you know, you can't get this experience on the small screen, uh, first of all. These are movies made to be seen in a theater. They're made to be seen on IMAX, IMAX if at all yeah. possible, with Dolby surround sound that's making you shake in your chair, right? So secondly, they are very pro-American. And and, I, and I'll note back to Top Gun, since we mentioned that a moment ago. I remember when the trailer came out for Top Gun Maverick, which I think I've seen nine times, <laughs> okay? I think three times in the theater, but... Let um, me tell you, Joe. I just love that. I movie. can tell you how it ends. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't tell you right now. But uh, for those who are like, right. but I'll ask anybody who's watching this: Why haven't you seen Maverick at least once, much less six, seven, eight, nine times? Yeah. But in the trailer for Top Gun Maverick, it, there was a weird moment where Tom Cruise is, is picking up a leather jacket mm. with all kinds of patches from his various military deployments overseas around the world, and he's putting on this leather jacket. It's the same jacket he wore in the nineteen eighty five or 86 film, but in 86, it had a patch from Taiwan, mm. okay, the Republic of China, not the communist China, but right. you know, which is mainland, but, right. but the island. And in this trailer, it had been blurred out 
and it wasn't Taiwan anymore. Wow. And people are like, whoa. I mean, it was a little detail, but that yeah. struck us, many of us, myself included, as, well, I'm not sure if the term woke is right, but you're basically kowtowing to a communist Chinese regime. Why? Understandably, you want to sell this film into Chinese theaters and you want to reach a billion people. But should you? Yeah. I mean, if you really can't defend Taiwan, which is a democracy threatened with annihilation or, or being gobbled up by communist yeah. genocidal, you know, thugs. Yeah. This how you really think that your Top Gun movie is going to work? And to his credit, Tom Cruise changed that. He didn't make a big announcement about it. But when you see the film, the Taiwan patch is back. It's, it's just one signal that usually Hollywood yeah. goes the other direction. If you're not woke enough or you're not anti-American enough, then the pressure will cause you to uh, Hollywood to go even in the wrong direction even more. So big, spectacular movies. Very pro-American, but character-driven. You know, this is these are different from you know Vin Diesel or I don't know Steven Seagal films yeah. back in the day, or where it was pure action. But you really didn't. These characters were plastic and yeah. one-dimensional, two-dimensional at best. And and Tom Cruise and 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 McHugh, he calls them Christopher McQuarrie, his director writer. These guys really think about what makes it emotionally interesting. Mm-hmm. What, what can we surprise the audience in their relationships, and how does this team? of friends sure. handle these assignments when maybe they could just let one of their friends be killed for the greater good, but Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, will never do it. And that's yeah. considered a flaw by some, but a strength by others. And I think those relationships, those three and, elements make Mission Impossible movies huge. And next one, this is the last, next to last, but the next one, that's it for Tom Cruise. Yeah. He's, he's finishing this series. Well, I mean, he should be. He's going to start collecting Social Security checks. Well, yes. How does he do these things? At, you know, <laughs> I have I, no idea. It's amazing. Hey, look, I think that's some of the things that I that I make a connection to your work uh, in fiction because you you have heroes who do amazing things, and yet there are some things that they won't do because there is a character element that defines them and brings them more reality. I would say than the. Uh, the superheroes or the the heroes that you know almost have no boundaries on their their own moral frameworks and and own right. emotional and psychological frameworks those are those are important components that bring us closer into those characters and and you and I have talked a lot about different movies that we love in different genres but they're always expositions or, or explorations of character and of who people are and what moves them and, and drives them that's truly what makes a drama a drama otherwise it's just you know, eye candy or, or, you know, you know, sort of empty entertainment, I guess. So. Yeah, and those films rarely work if you, no matter how good the special effects are, how big the stunts are, if it's not character and emotionally driven, it won't right. work. Now, my, I appreciate you saying that because it's true that, you know, my novels compete up against all the best ones in the business, but I have several self-imposed challenges you know, I'm not going to put gratuitous sex scenes or right. any sex scenes, it doesn't have to be gratuitous or not, <laughs> into my novels. Well, th- right. that's something that some thriller readers look for. So you're not going to find it in mine. And there's not going to be all kinds of profanity or obscenities mm-hmm. in my books, which is a mainstay. I don't think it's done by other writers because they yeah. think I need to fit this in. It's just yeah. how they think, how they talk. But I don't do that, which makes yeah. my mind very different. But also then I have spiritual themes, maybe you know, maybe not over the top, you know, preaching sometimes, but sometimes prophetic elements or other, which again, makes it very, very different. And my, you know, and Marcus Riker in the current series isn't an assassin. He's somebody who's trying to to protect. He's a protector by nature and training. He's not hunting people as a, as a normal way. I mean, he is in this 
particular Libyan diversion book, but that's because of some other factors that are not normal for him. Yeah. But all that to say, um, yeah, I think Hollywood has gone off the rails in so many ways. But these films this summer, there are a few. Mission Impossible is the biggest, yeah. uh, but there are these two others, Sound of Freedom and Golda coming up, which we'll explain in a moment. I would say another one, which we're not going to spend time on, but uh, I did see the end of the Indiana Jones series with Harrison yeah. Ford, yeah. which I've heard a lot of people hate in terms of critics. I liked it. I didn't love it, but I was glad to see it. And by the way, yeah. Syracuse is mentioned in this, so I should just bring this up. One of the plot and- elements says that there are clues to be found in Syracuse. And this <laughs> young woman goes, Syracuse, New York? And he's like, and Harrison Ford, you know, character no. in Indiana Jones. I'm like, no, no, Syracuse, Syracuse. Sicily in Italy. You know? <laughs> but I thought, whoa, how, how often does Syracuse get mentioned? You know, apparently so there's some cabal. I inside Syracuse. It's inside the, the epicenter, but <laughs> I'm, right. I am referencing there's that. There's some Syracusean there. cabal that's getting it mentioned in all apparently. these films. Apparently. Okay. Hey, Joel, we're going to take a quick break right now. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about those two other movies that you want to uh, discuss because of some really powerful themes and things that, that are involved in both of those. We'll be back in just a second. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Our verse of the day today is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And our prayer requests today are, number one, to pray that God continues to help the leaders of Israel lead with wisdom and the fear of God. And second, pray that God helps the Jewish people to always remember their divine heritage and help them come to a knowledge of Jesus as their Messiah. Well, Joel... We're back, and um, I want to give a note to our listeners that uh, we've just gotten word that uh, President Biden will be meeting with uh, Israeli President Herzog, and uh, President Herzog has just landed uh, in the U.S., and uh, for those meetings with uh, President Biden, and I know our our listeners will want to keep that uh, those meetings in prayer. And in addition to that, we found out also on this podcast, uh, just as it's been going on, that uh, President Biden has finally called and invited Prime Minister Netanyahu to the United States for a state visit and a meeting. We both know that these are both long overdue and really indications of where this current administration uh, sees the relationship with Israel. And I don't want to get us off into that because we are talking about the movies. But, Joel, maybe you could give a little bit of a comment on those things that uh, we just got word of. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up, Carl, because it is just unfolding as we're recording this. And so we will unpack 
those elements, why they're significant, what Herzog is saying, not only to President Biden at the White House, but in his uh, speech to a joint session of Congress, he's only the second Israeli president to ever address the entire uh, House and Senate in a joint session in all of uh, modern Israeli history. So that's important. Who is Herzog? Why did he get invited? What did he say? Mm -hmm. Why is it important? And what did he say to Biden? And of course, the Netanyahu-Biden uh, relationship, which has been frosty and tense and uh, and problematic. Mm-hmm. So we'll get it all into all of that in a, in a, in a very uh, soon upcoming uh, podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. But it might be worth pivoting then, not yet to Sound of Freedom, which is a very important film. Yeah. Maybe the mo- probably the I would say the most important film to come out this summer, yeah. and one that ev- everybody needs to see. And I want to talk about it. But I, I would say let's pivot into this movie called Golda, yeah, which is about the story of. Israeli Prime Minister Gold in My Ear mm-hmm. in 1973. It's coming out this fall, or late, actually late August. Yeah. It just premiered at the Jerusalem Film Festival over the summer. Helen Mirren, the Academy Amazing. Award-winning, you know, diva, you know, superstar actress, uh, very, very impressive. She plays Gold in My Ear, the, the wow. first and so far only uh, woman to ever be Prime Minister of Israel at a time of intense. A strain between mm-hmm. Israel and the United States. Uh, president Nixon was the president at the time. Henry Kissinger was the secretary of state. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Kissinger uh, is portrayed in the film, a uh, very, very powerful set of events in this film. I haven't seen the film yet. Um, okay. I've seen a lot of reporting about it. And I, we've requested interviews with the director, Guy Nativ, is an Israeli director, as oh, well wow. as Helen Mirren, for my TBN show, The Rosenberg Report. Uh, Guy Nativ has said yes. We're waiting on Helen Mirren. Wonderful. But it's a very interesting film. We'll get into it. But I just want to say it's not out yet, but I'm anticipating it. Now, yeah. it could be terrible, right? We, you know, I don't know yet. So <laughs> it's not, happened before. I can't review it. Yeah. But, but, but Gold of My Year's story is interesting in the way – Guy Nativ and his screenwriter chose this particular story is important because you could do a whole what's called a biopic, a whole biography of the life of Golda Meir. Uh, and I'll mention some sure. um, facts about her in a moment because, as you mentioned, I'm here in Denver. She lived in Denver. And you're like, what? <laughs> yes. She grew up part of her teenage life here in Denver. We'll get back to that in a second. You're like, what is that? What are you talking about? Right. She was not born in Israel, and she grew up as in the United States for a while. Wow. But what's interesting is he chose to sort of narrow cast into her life at the moment of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, where then-Egyptian President Anwar Sadat launched the uh, horrific yeah. sneak invasion of Israel on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, the mm-hmm. highest holy day on the Jewish calendar – Sadat wasn't alone coming in from the south, from Egypt. He had also gotten the leaders of Syria to attack and invade Israel from the north. This was the worst invasion in the history of modern Israel. Israel was so caught off guard. Mm -hmm. This was a massive intelligence failure for the Israeli system. Golda Meir made major mistakes in the weeks and months leading up to the war and during the early stages of the war. Hmm. She doesn't survive the whole thing politically, Hmm. but she doesn't lose the war. She and her team win the war against all odds. And her character, her grit, her resolve, but also her flaws really come through in the story. Now, whether it comes through in the film, we'll have to see. We've seen some 
really disappointing movies about Israel in the last decade or so that you think, really? How did you blow that? Like yeah, there's, there's a movie about the um, the uh, Entebbe yeah. rescue where yeah. a plane of Israelis were taken hostage by Palestinian terrorists. They were flown to Entebbe, Uganda, and Israel mounted a secret commando raid to rescue all the hostages. And they did. And there was only one fatality, was, sadly, tragically. Yeah. That was Benjamin Netanyahu's older brother, yeah. Yonatan, or Yoni, who was shot – in the back from a sniper just mm. as they were getting in the plane, just as they were about to take off. Yeah. That's one of the most dramatic mm. stories in the history of modern Israel. And the movie is terrible. <laughs> and you think, how did you blow that story? Yeah. Are you got to be kidding yeah. me? Yeah. So that's one of several movies that have just whoops, not gone well. Yeah. So I have high hopes for this one, uh, Golda, but we'll have to see. Well, you know, I mean, certainly it has the earmark of, uh, a, uh, a movie that could make a, a, a profound impact on people's understanding and, and really hopefully, you know, keep a positive conversation available about the national bravery of Israel, the, uh, the lessons of leadership and the lessons of difficult choices that leaders need to make sometimes. And of course, you know, uh, with candor, um, the, it wasn't just, uh, sort of an idea, but she's actually been given an award at the premiere by the president of Israel, right? Didn't President Herzog give Helen Mirren a, a special award for portraying, uh, Golda Meir in this? Yes, which is ironic because there'd been, when she was chosen, when she was cast to play Golda Meir, there was a big brouhaha in the media, like, why would you choose a non-Jewish woman to portray, you know, this the, hero, icon. the Jewish hero yeah, of, of Israel? Right. <laughs> I don't find that type of attack line reasonable. I think that has a lot of woke elements. Look, actors and actresses portray people they're not. And by I mean, that's sort of the point. It, you, you, a director can usually hire almost anybody that he or she can afford. Now, that doesn't, yeah. you know, sometimes they, the film budget doesn't allow for the actor or actress that you want. But you, what you're casting is someone who can portray the mm. character of this person so that we see them. We're not watching Helen Mirren as a Brit, a white British person. We're looking at this person as a Jewish Israeli. And if she doesn't convince us of that, she shouldn't have been in the film. But she is an extraordinary actress. And by the way, the makeup job for her is spectacular. By the way, you know, Golda Meir, God bless her, was not the most attractive uh, world leader. There's actually a Seinfeld moment where they're sitting in the coffee shop, Jerry, George, and Elaine, and they're all talking about who's the least attractive world leader. And they're like, oh, I think it was De Gaulle. And then the other one's like, Lyndon Johnson. And and Elaine says, have you seen Gold in My Ear? She could make them all run up a tree. Now, <laughs> That's horrible. Gold in My Ear was That's not horrible. elected prime minister of Israel yes. because she was a movie star, right. uh, you know, an A-list right out of – you know, a central casting, but because she represented something. And again, a woman elected as prime minister of Israel, but also anywhere in the Middle East or almost anywhere in the world. At that point, you know, the women's rights movement hadn't been getting all kinds of people, women elected to office. So this was a big deal. People were choosing her. Now she made some major mistakes, but the reason the movie is significant and why I hope it goes well is because it raises a very important question from the epicenter. Sure. That is this. Golda Meir had intelligence suggesting that an attack was coming, mm. but she dismissed it, she and her generals, because Israel had been so dramatically successful in 1967, just a few years prior to 1973, that she felt that the country was invincible and no one would dare attack Israel. Mm. And so she didn't launch a preemptive strike or even mm. mobilize uh, the, the vast reserves. majority of, yeah. of the forces 
based on the growing intelligence that was telling her there was a problem. This is significant now because Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has a huge decision to make. Hmm. Many people think that Israel, because of all of our defense capabilities, missile defenses and so forth, maybe that we're invulnerable to an Iranian nuclear attack and that maybe we don't have to take preemptive action to stop Iran from being able to build the bomb. But others worry, no, if you don't strike first, you may never have the chance to strike at all. You know, in other words, an Iranian leader years ago, uh, Rafsanjani, um, mm-hmm. said Israel's a one-bomb country. I don't know if that's really true, but his argument was if you drop one nuclear weapon on Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, you're going to so decimate yeah, yeah. the Israeli society, the economy, and you're going to kill so many people, but you're also going to ruin their economy, their tourism, their trade. Their t- hmm. that You can end Israel with one nuclear bomb. Okay, hope that's not true. I hope they don't have that as a philosophy. The Iranian leadership wants to bring about a second Holocaust, right? If the Iranian leadership could finally build nuclear weapons and attach them to the high-speed ballistic missiles they already have, they could do in about six minutes what it took Adolf Hitler six years to do, and that's to kill six million Mm, Jews. And the movie Golda talks about a prime minister hesitating Mm. in the Mm. face of imminent annihilation under pressure from an American president not to act. And it's relevant now because Israel has to make some decisions. I don't want to go to war with Iran, but Netanyahu has to make a decision soon. Are we going to take preemptive action or are we just going to let Iran get the bomb and then hope that they never use it? Yeah. Well, that's an important reason alone to want to go see uh, the movie Golda. And, and, you know, it, it, comes in light of the fact that many movies uh, talking about the past give us insight into the present and maybe the future uh, because of uh, the way they uh, lay out those decisions that need to be made and in some cases aren't made. Or I remember seeing, you know, some films, um, uh, 10 Days in October, uh, you know, about the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and largely just dialogue because it's dialogue, but it, it puts you into the room of making strategic decisions that really the fate of the free world and, and the world at, at large would, would really pivot on. And we know, we call this podcast Inside the Epicenter because Israel is the epicenter. It's the apple of God's eye. It's the center of of all human history and uh, all prophetic history as we look forward. What are some of the lessons do you think that we can, I know neither of us have seen this movie, <laughs> but from the experience of Golda Meir and the Yom Kippur War, what are some of those lessons that we might be able to take from this movie and make it a must-see for us? Well, for me, one of those lessons is that people who misunderstand the nature and threat of evil risk being blindsided by mm. it. And even though Golda Meir had great strengths, but she miscalculated terribly. She was able to recover because she remained strong and she didn't give up or have a, you know, a mental breakdown in the midst of this war. But Israel was so losing the war in the early stages of, of October 1973 that the history books are filled with, with accounts that she was being advised to pull Israel's nuclear weapons out of storage mm-hmm. and use them against the Egyptians and maybe even the Syrians to end this war and to protect Israel. She chooses not to. She believes that she can, that Israel can win conventionally, but the, Israel's backs were up against the wall. So yeah. that's the danger of waiting. Israel doesn't have strategic depth. Israel's a small country, and we can't take a first punch 
Right. Well, if you see the other team balling up their fist and getting ready to punch, you have to strike first. Yeah. So this is a big issue. But I, you know, some other things that are interesting just a little bit, and I know we want to get into sound, The Sound yeah. of Freedom, which is, I think is the most important movie of the summer and uh, most impactful to me. You mean it's not but Barbie? I will say, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Uh, so Gold in My Ear is interesting for several reasons, just a little bit of, uh, of biography, because she was born in Kiev. Mm. That's the way we grew up saying it, but mm. now it's said Kiev. people say Kiev. She's Ukrainian. Mm. She's Jewish. So she was living, you know, her family was living in exile. But it's interesting to be born in May of 1898, being born as a Jew in Ukraine, which was a hotbed of anti-Semitism at that time, as was all of all of what became the Russian Federation. But Mm -hmm. it's interesting; those were her roots, and because of persecution and poverty and lack of opportunity for Jews, her family decides to leave. Now, I'm interested. I read her biography when I was in college at, at Tel Aviv University. And I've always been intrigued with her story. There were policy issues I disagreed with her on, but I, I, I'm intrigued with her story because my family were Orthodox Jews in just a little bit north of that in Minsk, which is the capital of what's now known as the country of Belarus or White Russia, but mm. was then part of Russia and, and in the Soviet era, of course, was part of the Soviet Union. And both Golda Meir's family and mine didn't go to Palestine you know, British mandated Palestine at that time. Both of our families left under Jewish persecution in what we know today as Russia or Ukraine and came to the United States. Golda's family settled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my family, you know, on my dad's side, uh, settled in Brooklyn. At the age of 15, Golda Meir decides she doesn't like Milwaukee and she has uh, some relatives, I think a cousin in Denver, Colorado. And she basically escapes and decides to relocate herself wow. because she wants more educational opportunity. And she hears from her her, uh, her family and friends that uh, she can go to Denver. And so there's actually a Golda Meir House Museum here in Denver. To my shame, I've never gone. My, I've but never I, even I mentioned heard of it, it this morning to my wife before we did this podcast. And she's like, I've been there. Yeah, your mother <laughs> took me years ago. I'm like, well, <laughs> Why did you take me? I don't know. I was probably wow. on some book tour or something. Yeah, probably. So I'd like to go there. So it's interesting because she's born in Kiev. She doesn't become an American citizen, but she starts growing up in America. Mm-hmm. I don't, well, I'm not aware of that she was an American citizen. I'll have to look that up. But then she emigrates, as my family later did, to Israel. And just think about that. You're not born in Israel. Yeah. You're not raised in Israel. You eventually go to Israel, but then you become the prime minister of Israel yeah, as a woman. Cool. That's amazing. That is such an interesting story that again, yeah. I just pray that uh, the movie does her justice. Yeah. She was a cover story in time magazine. She's not like most other leaders. Yeah. And uh, so I think her story is so interesting and uh, I hope that people will read her autobiography and go see this film. And then I'll, I'll review it for all Israel news and for uh, my TBN show. Maybe we'll, hopefully yeah. we'll get the interviews and maybe we'll do another podcast uh, uh, on it once we've seen it. Well, we certainly feel like movies are an important way for this culture to interpret things that are going on. And um, I know another movie we'd like to talk about at some point in time, I'd like to talk about sometime is uh, Oppenheimer. I'm looking forward oh, to seeing uh, that yes. um, because again, Absolutely. you know, we're faced with a very, very volatile world and, and movies like Golda uh, and like Oppenheimer give us uh, that insight. But now to move from a movie that we neither of us have seen to a movie that both of us have seen and that is extremely powerful and perhaps tells truth in a way that 
that makes us uncomfortable uh, is the movie The Sound of Freedom. And um, it's out now. And if people haven't had a chance to see that movie, I, I highly recommend it. And Joel, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about your perspectives on the movie uh, The Sound of Freedom with Jim Caviezel. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Sound of Freedom is the most important movie of the summer. It's been the breakout hit of the summer, making $85 million so far as mm-hmm. we speak, where nobody thought it was going to do anything. And it's also a very surprising movie in the sense that it was finished in 2018, hmm. and yet no studio was willing to release it hmm. for five years. Wow. The movie company that made Sound of Freedom which is about a a, a homeland security agent for the United States, a guy named Tim Ballard, played by Jim Caviezel, who, of course, famously played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And this character, but it's a real true story of Tim Ballard, becomes so uh, horrified by uh, human trafficking, particularly child trafficking, particularly child sex slave trafficking, that he decides to quit his job with Homeland Security to get even more directly involved than the U.S. government would allow him to rescue children that have been captured and forced into sex slavery. It's a very powerful Mm. story. It's tastefully told, meaning you can feel how evil these things are, but you're not having to see things. I mean, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to watch it. I wasn't sure what I was going to get. You don't have any doubt what's happening, but they're careful to make you understand how horrifying this is without taking you over a line and much less, God forbid, glorifying or in in any way or any of it. So I agree. You feel how ugly and disgusting it is. And you think, how come more people aren't trying to stop this and to rescue kids out of it? But what's key, and I just want to make this one other point right now, um, is the company that made Sound of Freedom – the film company then got bought by Walt Disney and Disney refused to release the film. Hmm. And it took legal battles to get the rights to the film back to the wow. filmmakers. And then after they went through all that process, then they had to go try to find a distributor to release the film and put it in, in, in theaters. And it took them five years and nobody wanted to do it. Wow. And they finally found an independent distributor out of uh, London, I believe it was, called Angel Films or Angel, Angel Movies or something yeah. like that, who did some crowdfunding to raise some money and very quickly was like, yeah, this is important. We will do it. And most people thought, well, that's not going to go anywhere. And it's been decimated Huge. by the Rolling Stone and all kinds of other far left, heartless publications who've trash this film and you're like i don't know wait why. a minute wait i'm not saying it's it's the greatest movie ever made technically but it's powerful it's emotional and it's important yeah. how cold-hearted could you have to be yeah. in the media not to say you know what this is an important film you should see it you're not gonna feel comfortable through it but it's heroic it's important yeah. and we can't all agree in the in the united states or in the media about the importance of fighting sex slavery for children like uh, what is wrong with the media? Like, it's just, just it's as shocked as you and I are about yeah. media bias. Why I started All Israel News <laughs> or the Rosenberg Report. I just can't believe the campaign against yeah. this film. Yeah, that's that was a mystery to me. And it was a it was one of the reasons I, I really wanted to see it. Obviously, yes. I had heard about the important <laughs> right. part. But I said, what could the left 
object to about a film that is portraying heroic activity to stop child sex slavery. I mean, okay, you can say maybe it was made badly or the maybe, but, but it's not. And it's, it's not. actually it's really powerful. well made, yeah. really well acted. Uh, I was surprised maybe in a, in sort of that a way that we still sometimes are by faith-based or, and, and believe me, it's not, it's not really a faith-based film, but it's a, it's an important faith component of Christianity to, to stand for those that are, that are the weakest and the Right, but they're pretty vulnerable. light on the, I mean, you very, don't see a very. bunch of crosses, you don't no. hear sermons, you know what's driving two of the characters, but yeah. it's it pretty, it's, it's, it's very it's light. lightly told. But it's, but it's so powerful and it's so moving and it's so real on some levels that I was stunned to really re- go back and say, why would people? And you know, you have to ask yourself, is there something else going on that literally cannot allow someone, even with very, very different political and social views, to unite on this simple piece of common turf? It's bad that a million children a year, up to a million children a year that we know of, are, are abducted worldwide into child sex slavery. And somebody's got to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly, you know, I, I, this, we can't get into all of this, but I, I have to say my disappointment with the Walt Disney Corporation. Huh. Here's the company that's most defined in our minds over the last hundred years as being the most pro-family, pro-child company in the world in terms of entertainment, right? And yet something has gone seriously wrong deeply, at the upper wrong. echelons of the Walt Disney Corporation. And I... Uh, you know, obviously they're, they're waging this battle politically in Florida, uh, to encourage the teaching of just very anti-biblical sexuality to school children in elementary ages. And with, uh, again, this is not a political endorsement. It's just a notation yeah. that Florida governor Ron DeSantis and, and the entire Florida legislature is like, this is not appropriate. Like you can disagree and you can talk about, you know, homosexuality versus biblical sexuality, but you know, we're not doing that for second graders, third graders. We're not going to allow the encouragement of changing your body, uh, slicing off body parts, changing your gender. We're not going to encourage that in our public school system in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. It's just not appropriate. It's not, appropriate. It's not right. We're not going to do it. That is common sense, right? And yet the Disney Corporation has gone to war. Yeah. With DeSantis and the people of Florida, as far as I can tell, to say, no, that type of bizarre sexual discussions and behavior should be taught to minors. And you're like, what what are you talking about? And so for Disney to have a film in its possession, which is a hugely important film about protecting children, vulnerable children. Yeah. And to not want to release it, I'm not going to say why I think they didn't want to do it. I would like to hear somebody say from the top of the company – we didn't believe in this film because what? You put films out about everything, yeah. right? Yeah. So why would this be anathema to your company? And I, I just don't – I mean, I, I think I do understand it, but I, it yeah. bothers me. And yeah, it bothers me too. Thank God this film, yeah. uh, its makers, yeah. worked so hard to get the rights back yeah. and to release it. I do have a couple criticisms of the film, but I still think people should see it. And the criticisms I have don't undercut it. I think it just would have been stronger in a couple of areas. Yeah. Well, I left that theater and my wife would tell you, I've never been as impacted by a movie 
uh, in quite a long time. And I don't think it was simply because of the movie. I love movies. I love to be moved by movies. I love, you know, Saving Private Ryan. I can hardly even talk about the first scene, you know, or the last scene there where he says, tell me I'm a good man without choking up, right? I mean, that's what the movies should do for us to bring us to that emotional place of authenticity. But when you see a movie like Sound of Freedom and you know unmistakably that this is happening right now, there's a darkness here that you see. And, and like you said, it's not exploitive. It's not in any way, um, you know, sort of the way Hollywood might portray this, but it's portrayed in, in such a tasteful yet powerful way. I left, I left wrecked. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to put it any other way. I was just like, I don't know where to go with this. And I think a lot of people will, uh, might find it to be a very disturbing film in, in that sense. Yeah. And, and we should note, I would not take uh, a yeah, teenager no. until you as a parent have seen it, not because of what you're going to see, but because the emotional impact of mm-hmm. what they're saying is happening is so profound that I just want to give this parental guidance. You know, I, yeah. you know, it's definitely a PG film, but go see it as a parent. In fact, go take your small group Bible study, go take some neighbors, That's what we see did. it. Yeah. You won't be able to talk about it that night, nope. but maybe after a day or two, after you come up for oxygen again, you can discuss it and then decide whether your individual children or which one of them at, mm-hmm. at which ages are capable of it. it. It's a judgment call that I think should be taken very, you have to be very discerning in, in for your own children. Right. Well, as you know, uh, we're, we're working at the podcast and also at the Rosenberg report to, to have some uh, time with uh, both the star and the director of the film, because we feel like there's a connection here. And even obviously, anytime we talk about the movies, we're always having to say, this is about the epicenter. <laughs> but, but you know, there's, there's so much of this that goes on globally and so much uh, that we're trying to be about here at the epicenter, about a broad understanding of why these things are important, that I think it's important for us to talk with people who are making films that are, that are shaping the conversation. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, I, yeah. and, and maybe we should do a show this fall on the pandemic of sex trafficking, mm. even in Israel and throughout the broader Middle East. It, it is an issue. I don't have to uh, you know, give my credentials again on how much I love Israel. I'm a citizen. My sons have served in the army there. We're all in. But it doesn't, doesn't mean that Israel is a perfect country. And, and, and sex trafficking is as much of a problem there yes. as it is in the United States. And I think it's actually even worse in some Muslim Arab countries. And so putting a, a spotlight on that and saying, well, what can we do about it? Yeah. Aside from praying, wh- how can we be helpful? I think is important. Helping young people uh, be protected, people who are, might be vulnerable to this, to, how do you protect them? Uh, what are ministries that, uh, in Israel that are doing the right thing on these things? All of these yeah. things are important and we'll talk about them. I will say, I, I do want to give my one critique of sure. of Sound of Freedom. I know we only have a few moments here, but um because I saw I saw an, a very interesting podcast with Jordan Peterson and Tim Ballard hmm. and Jimmy Caviezel, but but Ballard, of course, being the guy who actually is the guy who did this, who was the Homeland Security, you know, uh, officer who yeah. quits his job to to go rescue children because the U.S. government wouldn't let him do it. In the podcast, in the conversation Jordan Peterson had, what's interesting is that Ballard makes it clear that it wasn't just like resigning his job. He was 10 months away from being vested in his pension yeah. after I think it was almost 20 years 20 on the years job. Service, yeah. And so there was a huge financial cost. You know, working for the U.S. government isn't a lucrative position. And if you do 20 years in the Homeland Security Department, you're not going to get rich. But one of the benefits is, you know, and I don't have a pension. <laughs> I don't work for the U.S. government. <laughs> right. uh, but he, he was about to have you know, a pension, which – 
you know, would take care of his family to a certain degree, you know, in the next, you know, the last season of his life. But 10 months out, he decides, no, I'm, I'm quitting and I'm giving that up and I'm going to go hunt bad guys and rescue children. Good for him. But the film doesn't portray that emotional key moment. That to me is the key moment. Yeah. It doesn't portray it as effectively as it could be in the podcast. It's much more powerful and, and it's odd in the way the movie was done. Again, it doesn't take away from it, yeah. but it would have added about 25 or 50% more emotional impact because <laughs> at that moment, it's almost glossed over what a big decision he's making. Yeah. And again, I won't, sh- I won't tell about how they do it. I'm just saying I've been talking to friends about well, how would I have done it based yeah. on listening to the actual story and, re- and just thinking, Hmm, it's just a miss. It doesn't mean that the film is no. bad. It doesn't, not at all. But again, last point here is here's somebody who sees evil and decides what am I supposed to do about it? And yes. he's being counseled by people. Don't do anything like you know, do the next 10 minutes of your job, get vested in your pension and then do it. And he's thinking, but these are specific children that aren't going to make kids. it for 10 months. Yeah. And other yeah. people are saying to him in real life, you can't save every child, take care of yourself and your family. And then, which is not an unreasonable thought, but he wants to quit. But then he's afraid that his wife will say, what are you, what are you insane? Like we, you, yeah. you do have to think about us first, but in fact, and this is my one other criticism of the film. In truth, in reality, it's the wife, Ten Bowd's wife, who says, honey, you have to do it. You will be hunted. You will not be able to sleep if you don't do this. And I'm all in. And he's like, yeah, but it's going to cost us a lot because it's going to cost us more if we don't do the right thing. If you don't do the right thing, I'm with you, honey. That is not what every wife is going to say, but it's pretty powerful. It's not depicted in the film until right at the the last frame of the film is gives a lot of credit to the to his wife and says he wouldn't have done it without her but sadly they don't actually a- show that and the character of his wife played by Mira Sorvino maybe they filmed it and they thought it was too long I, but i think i think it's a mistake <laughs> i don't know don't show her yeah. and her role more robustly yeah. because it's part of the true story and ultimately, this story is not just about human trafficking. It's about if you see something wrong mm-hmm. and you think, I could make a difference, how do you as an individual or as a couple, what do you do? Are you willing to take a risk even though it's going to cost you? And I think that ultimately is in, a, in our day and age and what we talk about inside the epicenter is about what, how, what, how do I and my family, my, my marriage, how do we make a difference in a world that hates our values but still needs to hear the truth yes. of God's heart and love and, and, yeah. and forgiveness? So to me, that's the core of the film. It's done well but not nearly well enough yeah. compared to what the true story is. Yeah, the, the, the true story. I don't know. Maybe maybe one of the reasons they uh, they pulled back a little bit was because I don't know if anybody could have walked out of the theater on two legs if there was more emotional impact. But but I will say it really did strike me that Tim Ballard was you know kind of like the biblical men of Issachar who understood what was really going on and took action. And, uh, you know, I, I just have to say, you know, this is a movie that will leave you with a psychological burden. It will leave you with a burden of what can I do? What should I do? I don't know of anybody that I've talked to after the film who could, who literally walks away and goes, yeah, it was a good movie. Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, that's not the kind of film you're going no, exactly. to see. Yeah, and, exactly. And, to ra- and you just, you just hit the, the key yeah. point, especially for an inside the epicenter review of the movie, which is – Every major Bible character, even minor Bible character, we see has to make a choice. The world is evil. 
Mm. I know God personally. He is calling me to do something for him to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with him, right? That's what we're commanded Mm -hmm. in Micah to do. Am I going to do it, right? Mm -hmm. This is Moses's choice. Am I going to leave the palace or am I going to leave the, you know, the desert and help liberate my people? I don't want to do it. No, God, I'm not going to do it. I'm not the guy. And then we get, you know, Gideon hiding in a cave from the enemy. God calls him, you know, that famous moment where the angel says, uh, you know, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. That is, that is Bible humor because he's <laughs> hiding in a cave going, you know, I'm not a valiant warrior, but with God, you can be one. But he has to make a choice. Will I or won't I? Will I accept the call or won't I? It's Peter, you know, and true. all the apostles, but Peter is like racked with, I'm not sure I'm up for this. And I don't even want to be identified with Jesus in the final moments before his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. He's calling me to be his witness mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very end of the world. Will he do it or will he not? We love, and, and I, you know, you could add Ruth and Naomi. I mean, there's yeah, plenty sure. of women who, who make these decisions. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. So that is what the Bible calls us to. We may have different spheres that we're supposed to be involved in. Not everybody's right. called into fighting sex slavery right. or trafficking. But, but what is it that you're called to do and will you do it yeah. even though it costs you? We all have to wrestle with that. But that is really in many ways the heart of the biblical story, which is yeah. these are the people who made the, good, the right decision when it was hard. And these are the people who made the decision and we're never going to hear from them again. Yeah. Which side do you well, want to be on? Which side are you on? Hey, Joel, thank you so much. This has been great. Anyone, whoever gets to go to the movies with Joel Rosenberg is going to enjoy it. And, and you know, obviously we've talked about some heavy movies and some important movies, but this is what this podcast is all about, uh, that we're here to help each one of you uh, have more tools to understand what God is doing around the world, but particularly in the epicenter. And if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund and our website at joshuafund.com is the place you want to go. Uh, There you can learn about what God is doing in the Middle East and what the Joshua Fund is doing in this this epicenter to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in the healing work that we're doing in this critical region. And as always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to Inside the Epicenter. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg, founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund. And I've got exciting news. In 2023, I'm inviting you on behalf of our entire board and staff to come to the Holy Land, to come to Israel on the next prayer and vision tour. This is the 75th anniversary of the prophetic rebirth of the modern state of Israel back in 1948. And what is God doing here? It's amazing, spiritually, economically, in so many ways. There's been so much growth, so much progress, but the best is yet to come. And we want you to see it. We want you to walk where Jesus walked. We want you to see where the apostles ministered. We want you to see where people's lives were transformed by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We want you to see this city where Jesus died and rose again and where he's coming back, I hope soon. But in the meantime, come to Israel with the Joshua Fund. You can learn more about the trip, the itinerary, the cost, all the details at joshuafund.com. But sign up quickly because I think this thing is going to fill up fast. The Prayer and Vision Tour of Israel in the fall of 2023. I hope to see you there.
Looking for ways to stay positive? Brighten your day with the free story behind podcast. Hear weekly short stories that showcase true joy, love, and hope. Listen now at lifeaudio.com or by searching for Story Behind wherever you get your podcasts.